0: Welcome to the Total Football Podcast, I'm Connor Clements and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Anderson and a special guest, Chris Milicic. How are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. The pleasure is all ours. Um, Chris, we're going to run through a whole bunch of things, but uh, I I do want to try and go back into your history as a player and as a coach and we're we're going to try and bring out those stories from you. Um, I'm really excited to see what stories we can hear and and what tales you will tell to us. Um, Obviously, okay for the for the radio or okay for the podcast. um, But I'm sure that you'll have many a tale to tell. But in the meantime, we'll start with the the more formal stuff. Um, Just talking about your thoughts on the A-League restart. It's just been confirmed for the 16th of July um, and the move potentially to winter to suit broadcasters. Yeah, look, I think the A-League had to start like a lot
1: of competitions around the world. They're relying on TV money and they need to have content on TV And without that content, they wouldn't have got paid. So I think it was a no-brainer for the A-League plus other leagues around the world. They had to start. Um, It's going to be an interesting 28 days. They're going to have to play the 27 remaining league games in 28 days. So teams are going to be playing a a fair few number of games, especially with the way the A-League has its league competition where teams might have a game and then a week off and then time playing and different split rounds etc it's going to be a really interesting time so I think that they're going to have to do it I think they're going to have bigger issues when they get to the playoff series Uh, and I think that and I and I've said this before I think there's going to be a bolt to come out of nowhere because one team will come out of this better than others it could be Sydney FC but it could also be a Brisbane or it could even be a Central Coast Mariners or someone that comes out of the blue for no other reason they're settled and they've had the opportunity to settle the team settle the lineup forget all the things that have happened and to kick on so it's going to be really interesting and and the move to winter uh, it's a bit like people are starting to say we should go to winter here for our national league football Um, I've been around a long time, and I can remember the reasons why we went to summer. And one of the key reasons is alignment with OFC competitions, alignment with uh, Youth World Cups, World Cups, and especially alignment with the major leagues around the world. So we were in Australia were to go to a winter-based league for our National League, and you're talking playing through the July, August, September. Many of the players that would head off to trial in Europe or trial in A-League environments maybe not the A-League if they go to winter, they'll match us, but anybody else, they will be leaving a competition to trial and go and play. So then you have issues with transfer windows, you have issues with availability, you have issues with current contracts, etc., and especially with the rules that are in place. So the reason we went to summer for our top-tier competitions in the A-League and in New Zealand was to align with the world calendar. Now, a lot of the World Cups for the youth uh, in and around June, July... If we've got a national league in New Zealand and an A league running in Australia in that period, and the Under Twenty World Cup, and there's 22 to 23 players removed out of the competition because they generally do come out of localized competitions, it's going to lessen the competition. So the rules or the reasons we went to a summer league, they're still there. So I find this all a bit fascinating, and to follow the to do it for money, uh, to do it for TV is one thing. Uh, But in Australia in particular, you're going to be up against the other major winter sports. Um, In summer, they only compete with cricket. So, you know, you're up against the NRL, you're up against um, the AFL. So it'll be a really interesting move. And I often think that what's best for the game needs to take precedent over what is best for where the money's coming from.
2: Mm. So you mentioned a really interesting point there regarding, like, if it's the move for money. You'd have to think that there's going to be a lot of competition with winter sports here. So if the professional setup is actually just making the move for money, all of a sudden they're going up against the kind of casual fans' voice, or w- whether they either choose rugby or football, for instance, during the weekend. And well, a lot of us going to Westpac Stadium, or now Sky Stadium, realise that you're not really going to go to two games over the weekend. And I'm, I'd be pretty surprised if they, from another point, whether that stadium's going to be able to handle during the wetter months, coping with two professional games during the weekend, so there'll be even more um, fixture congestion in the stadium as well. You you mentioned a really interesting point, though, there, Chris, regarding trials. So when players go overseas, do they effectively have to transfer out of their current club if they're going to trial, or is that only if they're going to trial in an actual game uh, on on a match day um, overseas?
1: Well, they certainly couldn't become a match day player within a professional environment unless they signed a contract. So you don't have to take your transfer out. But there are transfer windows for going into clubs. Mm. Now, our transfer window in a winter period finishes, I think, if I remember right, it's either the 1st of June or the 30th of June, something, one of the June dates. Now, yeah if the window opens up in July for the um, Nash, uh, for an international clearance, then that becomes another issue completely. So it was all aligned with transfers. So no, you don't actually have to transfer to trial, but if you were going to play an official game, yes, you would need to transfer. And you're only allowed to do two t- transfers in any calendar year. So suddenly we're also, if a player transfers out and then transfers to another club, get an opportunity, and then comes back, they can't play. And so the ramifications of these decisions like a lot of decisions that get made in sport the ramifications aren't let's base the decision on what's happened previously and what we believe is going to happen now you've got to believe how it's going to be utilised and used and in some cases abused in the future so you actually have to think beyond the small picture you're looking at and look at the big picture and how it's going to affect the bigger picture and what the people in the bigger picture are going to need and I think that doesn't happen in most of these decisions within a sporting environment
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think too. From if you look at the setup that we have in this country with our professional football setup, it potentially—I don't understand it from an Australian point of view—but it's potentially going to create a whole lot of hiccups from the Phoenix side, and that will probably trickle down into the national system. Because, for instance, even like going back to the match day, I struggle to think how these crowds are going to get bigger if—if not stay the same. With in Wellington, for instance, you've got a bunch of um, teams that potentially would be going to the Phoenix anyway. Finishing their game, so starting their game at two thirty, finishing their game at five o'clock. Are they really going to make the journey to go along to the professional uh, game after that? Well, like,
1: that that is going to be a challenge. If we all have a limited disposable income and and also a limited desire. Like at five o'clock in Auckland and in Wellington in winter, it's starting to get dark. It's getting cold. It's getting wet. So my decision not to attend a game can be based around do I really want to go sit in the freezing cold and pay for the right to do that? Whereas currently within a summer environment in Wellington on a nice summer day, you could go to the game, the game could almost finish in you know sunshine, and then I could walk to the pub, uh, walk to one of the environments downtown, and have a night out. Now once it's wet and cold and miserable, you're not going to want to do that. But yeah. in saying that, the Hurricanes are down there. Um, you've got you're, – you're fighting basketball. You're fighting netball. You're fighting the children playing the winter codes as well. So if you're a parent of a young player and he gets up at 8 o'clock to play at 10 o'clock and then you play and you do some social football, by the time you've finished your day, you're over it. You're absolutely over it and you don't want to go to the next uh, aspect. And I think there's been a, a bit of a fall-off and we see it with rugby – um, I think COVID-19 uh, ignited a bit of passion to go watch rugby but I think previous to that the crowds for the the Super 14 or Super 15 whatever it's called was, was dropping off considerably because the more you put blocks in front of people's entertainment the easier it is for them to make decisions not to attend and there's always going to be the hardcore but the hardcore just pay the simple bills they don't allow you to grow the club you need to uh
2: it's not, it's not the, the, community the, community it's not in the cream at the top, right? Yeah. So, so the hard, the hardcore are just your bread and butter. But yeah. the cream at the top are, the, are, are when you're getting the crowds 7,000 and above. Yes. And so the, those tickets are going to be the ones that are actually going to give you know make it worthwhile for the club and the business. Um, and so you mentioned money as one of the driving factors. I, like I keep saying, I'm struggling to see why they'd make the switch. From a footballing context, would you – like, is there a reason why you think that they're making the switch to winter?
1: I can't understand that because the one thing that I know within, and I've coached in both winter and summer football, etc. summer football, you train on better conditions. You're able to train at a much higher intensity. You can do a lot more coaching and input into your team because you can stop, you can talk, you're not freezing cold and you're not running around. Of course, professional teams train during the day, but the proviso's still there. It's much easier to coach, and it's much easier to become a better footballer in optimum conditions. The fields also don't get wrecked, so you can work harder within smaller areas without destroying the pitch. The one thing in winter, you would have to be training on turf to do the same amount of work, but you don't play on turfs in the A League. You don't. You tend not to play on turfs in the National League, so you've got to get. You've got to be playing on the same surface. So you need to be doing the work. You think about if you were doing a finishing grid within a winter environment, you're under lights. We're talking National League here. You're under lights. You're stuck there. Um, You may not have the greatest lights. Your keeper's losing confidence. And then you've got to keep moving the goals so you're not ripping up the surface. All of these things start to impact upon desire, um, uh, arousal levels, optimum arousal levels for a player, and a willingness to do what's needed to get better. Now, in a professional environment... You say, you know, in the UK they train in the middle of winter and they play in the middle of winter. Yes, but if you've been to the UK and the professional environments there, there are multiple fields in a single environment for the use of two to three teams and they are immaculate and manicured to an nth degree. At the lower tiers in England, those clubs are using school grounds that are paddocks, being ripped up and they struggle to get any sort of consistency in what they're trying to do. Surely about what's happening in Australia and New Zealand, we are driving to become much more competitive on the world scene and drive more and more of our players into professional environment. Why, therefore, would we go to an environment that makes our player development to be less optimal
0: than it should be? Mm. Absolutely. And um, I just want to ask, in terms of your thoughts on as a coach, what can he do in this situation? Because it's a situation that's unprecedented with this whole COVID thing. The Phoenix are having to go over and play their games in Australia. They're setting up camp there. They're getting players in from across the world who have to quarantine. How does he deal with this situation as a coach yourself?
1: Look, I think there are two sides here. The team knows what he wants them to do. So the coaching bit has been done. They've been performing well for weeks on end prior to the the lockdown. They were the form team in the competition and they were really driving. So I think if there's a lot of focus on the football, it won't work so well. There's going to have to be a lot of focus on the emotional needs of the players Mm -hmm. to make sure they're happy, they're in a good mindset, uh, they feel comfortable, they have access to their families through whatever means is required, but also they believe that they're and I'm going to use a word, safe. They believe that they're safe. Now, safe is a mindset of, I want to be, know that I'm safe. My, my income safe, my training venue safe, my hotel safe, everything's safe so that I can now start to explore and drive forward in my performance levels. If you take away the safe, which is the problem when you talk about people, teams traveling, they no longer feel quite as safe because it's a foreign environment. It's all the other aspects that come into it. So I think they're going to have to do a lot of uh, discussion in and around where they're, where they're sitting, um, have some very, very clear goals of what they're going to try and achieve in the next 28 days uh, once it starts and how they're going to do it. And everybody's on the same page, same pathway and going forward. I think the biggest issues they're going to have is if players get injured uh, they can't recover in the environment. Do they fly home? Do they stay there? There's a lot of uh, unknown of where, what's going on. And as we're seeing in the NRL, the NRL are now allowing the Australian teams to go back into their environments to start playing. So I think the Warriors go into Melbourne next week to play. Well, is, is the A-League going to do the same situation? And then you're, you're a person without a home sitting in Australia trying to play. And it's all very well saying fly in there, but historically we do know that the Phoenix Football Club don't win the same amount of games away from home as they do at home. So they're going to have to make it a home away from home with all the um, adjacent uh, best things that they can find. Because the one thing, you know, sometimes, and we don't know in this team... The teams up there as footballers, do they really, really, really like each other? And do they really want to spend a lot of time with each other? Only the people in that environment know. And if they don't really like each other, you can put up with it for a period of time because you just go to work. You know, you might be three or four days in Aussie, but you're going to work. Um, And if there's any clicks in there or any sort of complex that could be exasperated by the situation they find find themselves in. So I think there's going to have to be work around the self-mastery of what they need to do, and plus the performance mindset. Um, And this is where the leadership's really going to kick into this. So it'll be a really challenging time. uh, But I think with the adversity and the group they've got now,
0: um, they could come through, I believe. And what would Chris Milicic, the player, have thought of this whole thing? Oh, look, I just wanted to play. Like
1: any, any player just wanted to play, I'd be more concerned that I wasn't going to get picked and, um, you know, what was going on. But don't forget that I was a lot younger when I was playing. So we we're all a lot younger. And when you're younger, you can put up with all sorts of things. So um, it's when you've got a wife and kids and house and mortgages and all that sort of thing that all the other things kick in. But I think when you're in your early 20s, playing professional football, getting paid and having a bit of fun, well, what a wonderful
2: life. Yeah, absolutely. okay. Yeah, that's something I um, don't think a lot of fans probably realise is the sacrifice that some of these players are making, um, moving away from their families for such an extended period per- period of time. Only other parents, I think, will fully get that.
1: Yeah, I and for them at their age, most of them, if they do have children, will be young children, will be small children. And, and I've got two kids myself, and, and the reality is you don't want to miss what's going on early doors when they're there. You want to be part of it. And every time you miss a small moment, that will impact upon what you're thinking when you should be focusing on your job. But like all of us, we go to a job, we go eight to five or whatever we want to do as a, as a career. Um, we walk away from it. Then they're now going to be in an environment where they never walk away from it. Um, And they're going to probably, I'm not sure whether they'll be in single rooms, but sharing rooms. Now, imagine you're sharing a room in that environment and something happens at home and you're trying to sort it out via a a phone conference and your your, your roommate wants to get into the room. So, you know, all of those sorts of things sort of impact. I do know that when you're like, I've done a lot of touring and traveling with uh, teams uh, internationally and you kind of go into a bubble. And after World Cups and that, you come out of the bubble and it's been referred to as uh, you have a period where you're almost depressed because the, the simple life that you're leading is suddenly disappeared. So, uh, But there's a period of time where you can't do it for any length of time. And I've always been uh, curious to know how New Zealand cricket put it off with the black caps. And it's one of the things that I really want to sort of approach and look at in the next 24 months is how do they manage performance uh, with this environment, so if I was going away from a COVID environment, I'd be certainly they'd be the first people I'd be ringing up and saying, "Look, how do you perform week in and week out when you're on massive long tours in some quite difficult environments like India and Pakistan, etc., uh, where you could be playing in a more regionalised centre, which is so foreign to what you used to? How do you deal with that?" And I think that we've got uh, environments in New Zealand that could certainly help them.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, you've, you touched on it that you've been travelling in the past with the, with a whole bunch, travelling internationally um, with all the players. As a player, Chris, w- what was your career like? Did you do much travelling? Kind um, of take us back to, to Chris Milicic, the player.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, okay, that's such a long time ago. But
1: um, I joined, my my mum and dad were a very interesting mix. My dad was a uh, rugby lock. He's a, He was a good six-foot-four-and-a-half, six-foot-five man. And my mum's family were all junior Kiwi rugby league players, so I think there was a there was a bit of toing and froing whether I was going to play rugby league or rugby. And in the end, uh, I can't remember how it happened, but I ended up joining Ellerslie Football Club as a five-year-old to play um, football.
2: Oh, and
1: fantastic.
2: uh Yeah, so I'm not Ellerslie boy uh, as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's a funny old old world because it was a local club, and like a lot of kids, local club, and I sort of mucked around. I, I. I probably wasn't a very, very good player um, as a football player uh, because people who know me, I'm a, um, you know, I am what I am. But it was about nine or maybe ten. One day the um, the coach said, the goalkeeper hasn't turned up, who wants to give it a go? And I'd always thought it didn't look that hard. And <laughs> so I sort of put my hand up and uh, I was kind of a natural at it from, from day one. It just sort of suits my physicality my mentality and the reactions and all the other things that I I've, I've got and it just sort of suited me and and I remember when i started to really think man i'm i'm okay at this i think it was about 11 or 12 and we were in we were in a tournament and alasley at the time as a small local club and wasn't that good um we actually won the tournament and i'm a player of the tournament playing in goal and um, it was pretty easy because there were small goals and i just sort of threw myself around like a lunatic <laughs> but uh that sort of developed from there but i never actually had any goalkeeping coaching my whole life and that was really interesting and when I was fifteen, George Ritchie at the time was at Allesley and the first team, and I was still fifteen. I didn't turn sixteen till November that year, and he said to me out of the blue, "Right, Chris, you're um, you're playing for the first team on the weekend against Blockhouse Bay on the old Whitney Street." And so suddenly I, I was thrust into that, and I was I remember at the time I was extremely worried. I was concerned, but I was more worried that I didn't want to let the team down. Uh, but we won that game three one and uh, it sort of kicked on from there. Uh, but there was an interesting moment talking about stories. I um, I was playing for the LSE first team early doors, and then I George Ritchie decided, and rightly so, that at 15 I needed to then go back and play reserve football again. I was very, very annoyed with that, as <laughs> I was a very competitive human being. And I remember I went to a game and I was warming up, and my dad said to me, come over here. So I go over there, and he basically said either you play properly and play as you can week in and week out or we're going home right now because you're not going to let your teammates down by sulking in goal. And I remember thinking, wow, that's that's really quite hurtful and cutting. But I went in goal and I listened to him and I played, played really well. And weirdly, um, Doug Moore and Alan Jones were at that game as part of the New Zealand under-17 scouting thing. And that was sort of the start when I think people started to realise... That I I could play in goal. I didn't make the under 17s It was well in the process of what they were doing, and and I probably my distribution, especially from uh, from punting and from kicking perspective, wasn't up to the level it needed. I certainly my throwing was was decent, but my ball play off the deck was certainly uh, nowhere near good enough. And so I uh, from at age fifteen, and then I played four or five years in the first team from fifteen to about twenty, I think it was. Um, the team was okay. It struggled a lot. Uh, but for a goalkeeper, playing in a team that's struggling is gold. Uh, you have plenty to do. You're always working. You're, you're doing everything you need to do. And then it was about, I think I was 20 when I went to Mount Wellington. And at the time, John Adshead was the coach there. He would asked me to come in uh, to, to Mount Wellington, so I turned up. Uh, didn't play... It was a weird situation there. It's something that needed to be approached. But I played for Ellerslie on the Saturday, and then I sat on the National League beach for Mount Wellington on a Sunday. The, the clubs were had a, a memorandum of understanding for me, and so I would transfer in on a Saturday to play on the Sunday. So I would tour the team. And then the next year, I started playing for the, for the National League team right, and I played that year and we won the National League Grand Final but unfortunately the National League Grand Final which we won, uh, I badly dislocated my shoulder, it was a a pretty tough one, the ball came in, I I grabbed it, it was a wet day and as I landed the ball kind of slipped out of my hands and rolled under my elbow and as I came down my shoulder smashed past the ball and I dislocated it but I stupidly stood up and pulled it down and as I did that, the Uh. actual ball Dropped Mm. underneath the socket. So here am I standing up with my shoulder probably dislocated by three or four inches. Oh, God. And um, yeah. And so I never played in goal after that again. Never played. Uh, So then, weirdly, I went back to Ellerslie and I had four or five years where I played up front as a striker for the first (laughs) time. And and we won the Northern League when I was playing up front. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, wow. What a transition. And so, yeah, speaking of transitions, I mean, going from goalkeeper to striker, that's one thing. But then coaching, what made you decide to become a coach?
1: Well, that was really interesting. I'd always, as I, even when I was playing up front, I was doing goalkeeping coaching. So I worked with, uh, my goalkeeping coaching, I've worked with Jason Batty, I've worked with Mark Paston, I've worked with Michael Arding. I've done a lot of work with the All Whites uh, when they're around, especially when Ken Dugdale was there. Um, so I did quite a lot of work at goalkeeping coaching. Um, and weirdly, I, I remember I started coaching Jacob Spoonley when he was a young under 10, when his father first said to me, there's a, there's a boy here, can do really well. So him and Roy Bell and all these other young goalkeepers I worked for, uh, you know, looking back now, I, I just was learning how to coach goalkeepers. But more than that, I was working out how to coach a technique because at the time, the goalkeeping development was nil. There was nothing. And so the way I coached was the way I played. And looking back now as a coach, you go, wow. Because to, p- to coach the way I played, you had to be like me. You had to be one. You mm-hmm. had to be extremely powerful. And you had to be really quick. Well, a lot of the keepers aren't built like that. And so you have to you have to change it. So then uh, a friend of mine or a, a player that I played with a lot, Dave Woodovine, was coaching at Ellerslie. Uh, I think it was in 1997. And he said to me, uh, I need an assistant coach. So, why don't you go to the assistant coach and the goalkeeping coach? And so I decided to do that. And then at the end of the season, he said, I've had enough. I'm not going to do it. And I naively went, Well, I'll give it a go. It doesn't look that hard. <laughs> and in my first two years, when we took Allersley, when I took over Allersley, we, we came runner up in the Northern Premier League twice. And oh, wow. in both those times, we. Um, Uh, We didn't concede many goals. We pushed on. And, you know, and at the time you think, I know what I'm doing. I'm pretty good here. But the reality is I got away with it as a coach because the players respected me as a player and a person, and they kind of made me look as a coach much better than I actually was. At the time, looking back now, the coaching performances were, were more about motivation, more about let's just get out and, you know, do the fight. Than it was to do with any technique or technical or strategic approach to the game. Yeah, but in my first two years, I yeah, as I said, I come second twice, and then uh, sort of moved on and and carried on with that. I went and did the Auckland Senior Women's team in 2001, and we won the national Le- national tournament. Um, I then went and took over as LA- the LA- LA- AFC Women, and they won the um, they won the Swans Cup then. Because uh, at the time, what I was trying to do was I was trying to create a coaching le- uh, coaching background for myself. So what I was doing was I was coaching four nights a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, two nights men, two nights women with Ellerslie, and working on a consistent basis and also teaching myself how to coach different types of people because, of course, men and women by default, uh, they learn differently and they're, part- they're different. Uh, but I had to learn how to communicate when I was with the women um, at a much deeper level, and it, and it had to be uh, a language that had to change as compared to when I was coaching the men. And so what it meant, well, I was turning myself into a coach that could work consistently and start to teach people what I wanted, regardless of uh, their learning styles or their abilities. So I sort of did that. And, um, yeah, as I said, we won the Swans Cup. We were national championship winner. We won the Northern League with the women. And... So then I decided to go back into men's football and I went to Fencibles uh, in the old days. And the first year at Fencibles was probably the first year that I struggled a little bit. And we come, I think we come sixth and I was a bit – I couldn't believe this. This was just not something that had happened. But it was the first time it made me realise that I needed to do more work. So in that off-season, I really did do quite a bit of work on myself. And in 2002, I took Fencibles and we ran up. We were Northern League, Premier League uh, – runners-up again, which is Fensible's best-ever result ever. And and then I went and did some work with Sandy Davis with the New Zealand senior women, and we won a tournament. And then out of the blue, I'd been approached a year previously by Mount Wellington and asked, would I be keen on taking Mount Wellington? At the time, I had a year to go on my Fensible's contract, and I said, look, I don't break contracts. I'm going to finish my Fensible's contract, and then we'll have a conversation. And then between then and Mount Wellington, he ended up just missing out on uh, getting relegated by a point. Um, they came back to me again and said, we've got this wonderful idea to create East Auckland. Now, for those who don't remember, East Auckland came about was an amalgamation of four clubs. Um, it was sort of the prototype of the franchise league, and it was driven by Mount Wellington, but it had Ellerslie involved, it had Eastern Suburbs involved, and it had Fencibles involved. And so... this. This was in 2003. Oh, wow, yeah. It only lasted for a year. But the beauty of this thing, so I took over East Auckland. I had to combine five clubs or four clubs into a team and put a team out on the park for the National League. And so my my starting premise was Mount Wellington, who were basically just avoided relegation. And we came runner-up in the league, and we lost the grand final to Miramar at the time in the very last club National League. And... Well, that was the sort of start where I realized that my learning had to continue to improve, um, to continue to keep winning or to keep pushing a team in a position where they could win. And there's a big difference between winning and consistently winning. And so so I did that. And then, lo and behold, they asked for this franchise league, which is, was called the NZFC at the time, which has now morphed into the National League we have now. Um, and East Auckland missed out. And look, there were all sorts of court cases and I'm not going to go into the to's and fro's. But to this day, I still think there was an opportunity for four very big clubs in Auckland who had already proven the model, should have been given the opportunity. But at the time, they missed out. And and so I have suddenly found myself with nothing to do. And lo and behold, old Mr. Rex Dawkins come out of nowhere and said to me, Chris, um, we're putting together Watakere United. Um, At the time, Watakari had been relegated from the National League two years previously, and he was ready to go. And so once again, I went from scratch and built a National League club and team from scratch with Rex. And that year, we we came second in the league and we lost the grand final to Auckland City um, in a game in which we were probably the better team for most of the game. Um, at the time, Alan Jones was coaching Auckland City, so it wasn't the Auckland City style you see now. Um, and uh, we played really, really well. But that was the year in which we had brought Kieran Jordan out to New Zealand, and he was a revelation within the league. And then after that, after building two clubs the two two to three seasons, and I, I was over it. I was exhausted, so I decided to step back and uh, do a little bit of goalkeeping coaches. I did some goalkeeping coaching. I was a Football Kings goalkeeping coach with Winton Rufa when they came about in the old NSL. Um, I then went back and did some work with New Zealand senior women, and then I went and coached Eastern Suburbs for a year, and we came third in the Northern League, and then then after that, I I kind of realised within myself that coaching Northern League was sort of, a little bit beyond what I was wanting to do as a coach, that they didn't train enough. The players' adherence to the training methodology wasn't what I wanted. Um, The opportunity to miss trainings, to do other things, is more prevalent within a Northern League. So I decided that whilst I enjoy coaching that, I really need to get back to the National League. And so when Rex came and said, look, we're, we're, we're getting," Going back, and would you like to come back? I went back for 2008 and 2009, and I think that was uh, that was the years we went to the O League. We were O League champions twice. We won the league twice. Um, you know, we won a grand final. We pushed on. We we went to, as I said, went to the Club World Cup twice, and that was a really really compelling period of time for us. And and then, of course, I, I'm I'm the first to admit my drive to uh, get more and more successful with the environments I am, can rub a few people up the wrong way. And then the, the club itself decided they'd like to go with Neil Emblem because it would uh, he was thinking of bringing younger players through. Um, and so that was fine. And it did give me an opportunity then to go take the New Zealand under 20 men's team for four years, go to two World Cups, um, go to the Suwon Cup. Uh, we pulled down New Zealand's first ever results. And interesting enough with the New Zealand under-20s, when I when I took it over with the team, previous under-20 team had come third in Oceana and hadn't even got anywhere near qualifying for the, the World Cup. And so we decided that we were really going to drive for the 2011 World Cup qualifiers. And in that tournament, we scored 22 goals and only conceded one goal in the, in the tournament. And then we went off. And, and I often think that that team was was unbelievable you know we we got two points out of the group we drew with cameroon uh we drew with uruguay and we eventually lost one nil to portugal in the under 20 world cup and it was unbelievable i mean we'd gone from never scoring a goal at that level and never getting a point to suddenly being two points i mean being a goal away from qualifying for the next round because it was a very very tight world cup
2: so so, sorry tell us like I remember watching that World Cup, and as a fan, because football was obviously a buzz buzz at that time. As a fan, yeah. it was so awesome just to get a point at the World Cup, right? I think all fo- football fans really felt that. Like, even though it was the under twenties, it wasn't the um, at a World Cup. We got a point at the World Cup, and not only that, we then went ahead and got another point. But as the coach of that squad, how or, like, what a feeling that would have been when the final whistle blew when we when we got that first point, right?
1: Weirdly, that wasn't as compelling as when we were in the Suwon Cup. So we qualified, and then we went to the Suwon Cup in Korea. We got invited. And our Mm -hmm. opponents then were Uruguay, South Korea, and Nigeria. Nigeria at the time had just won the entire African qualifying for the under-20s, and they had rocked up this tournament. Um, And at that tournament, we we lost 1-0 to Uruguay with a goal that they scored right at the death when the player we put on... His instructions when he went on is when the ball comes out from a set piece, please do not play it back. You've got to hit it into the corners because you're the greatest counter-attacking team we've ever seen. Unfortunately, he decided he could play a ball into the midfield. They nicked it. They counted 4v1, scored a goal, 1-0. And then we played South Korea and we were murdered. Stefan Marinovic had the greatest game of his life. We lost 1-0 and it could have been 10-0. I'm not kidding. We just stood there and go, we can't even compete. So, But from then, we realized we had a core group of players that knew how to compete at this level. And then we beat Nigeria 4-3 at the Suwon Cup. So we beat the current African champions in a competitive competition, and we beat them 4-3, and we scored some great goals. And I remember we do all the after-match things, and we walk in, and I walk into the, the coach's change room and the coaching staff's all there, and I walked in. And I looked at it and I went, F me, we've just beaten Nigeria 4-3, and I kid you not, the entire team, the entire room started to laugh. It was so surreal. It was like, are you kidding? We've just beaten Nigeria, and we've done it simply. And that was when we realized that we had something special as a group there. And so then we drew with one 0 with Cameroon, and I thought, right, we've got our point, we're ready to move on. And when we were one up against Uruguay and really giving them a hell of a game, and then Dakota Lucas and then Andy Bevan and Dakota Lucas both had opportunities to put us 2-0. And I remember Dakota Lucas went in and we'd been talking to Dakota time and time again about hitting it across the keeper when he was coming down the right-hand channel. He goes into the goal belt and then he goes to hit it across the keeper. He noticed the keeper starts to move that way, so he hit it high to his left. The keeper had outfoxed him and stuck his hand up and put it over the top. We'd have been two 0 up against Uruguay and bossing the game, and we drew then. And the loss to Portugal was the one in which I sat back and I had the most pride because they eventually made the final then. But the most pride mm-hmm. of Portugal was we went toe to toe with them and they were they were a brilliant team. And then with 15 minutes to go, they were hanging on to get a to get the win. We were we were all over them. We were having chances. We had things. Their goalkeepers made a couple of wonderful saves. And we came off, and I thought, as a group, we have really done it. So I was extremely proud of that. But more than that, I was more annoyed that we hadn't qualified out of the group when we deserved to come out of the group, and some of the opportunities didn't come our way. And if you remember in the Cameroon game, Tim Payne has... Beaten his player on the outside, and he's put in a worldy cross. It's beaten everybody. It's floated over everybody. And Sean Lovemore, all he had to do was bundle in the goal, and for some reason, and even Sean himself will go, I don't know why he did it, he jumped up, and he volleyed over the crossbar from about four metres. That would have been the 2-1 win. And so, as a group, when you feel your group's got something about it, it knows how to win, it knows how to hang in there, it knows how to do what's required to achieve – then you have a sense of satisfaction as compared to a sense of Europa, euphoria.
2: Sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that's because I've always wondered, from a coaching point of view, you know, you, you get caught up in the emotion as a fan, but surely, as a coaching point of view, does the immense proud that you would have had for the team and like everything, all the hard work that you guys have put in.
1: Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, that was the that was the qualifying group in which. Uh, we, we qualified and then we got invited to the Suwon Cup. And because we'd done so well at the Suwon Cup, we ended up, I think it was $50, 000 US dollars which then allowed us to get all the players together on a very regular basis within New Zealand. So what we did, a lot of the players that we were taking to uh, Columbia, they decided they were going to come up and live in Auckland for three days a week. So they'd come up on a Tuesday morning and we'd fly them back on either a Thursday night or a Friday morning And we trained really hard for three days a week on everything we wanted to do. By the time we went away, we were fit and strong. And and people seem to forget that group, uh, we went and played the Wellington Phoenix at the time, which was an A-league side, and we went toe-to-toe with them. And if I remember right, we lost 1-0 right at the death, um, and we were all over them. We went toe-to-toe with with an A-league side. And so to me, that was the level you needed to get to to compete with the best young professionals in the world. And so we were, it was a well-prepared group, whereas the next group definitely had nothing like that and was always going to struggle within the environment without the support and development opportunities required to do it.
2: Uh, that's cool. Um, so we went out to everybody to get some questions uh, yep. to ask you about your time and uh, your experience. And uh, we've got some interesting questions here. I might leave this one to last. Um, Gordon Glenn Watson came and said, what would you have done differently in the Club World Cup match with Adelaide United if you could relive that game again?
1: Yeah, that was that was an interesting one. Uh, because we'd gone year one to, and we played Sepahan, I remember we were 2-0 down in three minutes to Sepahan, and we were second best. But it took, by the time we got into the game... Um, it was over, we lost 3-1 but it was a, it was a very interesting experience and, and don't forget we were the, the very, very first team to go away for that sort of environment uh, the Auckland City had gone away previously but I'm trying to remember, I don't think it was the same as the, the Club World Cup, it may have been, so then we came back and we resettled, so then we went into Adelaide, we had a player called Adriano who the club had bought in, he was a top class professional and he was a very, very good player but unfortunately the type of players we had and the ability they had he was a luxury for what we had then and when i look back i kind of think we were still i mean we were winning everything in the country we were a very dominant football team we were on three fronts we were trying to requalify in the o league we were trying to win the o league we were trying to win the national league and we were trying to get ready for the you know for japan and unfortunately If I had to do it again, I'd have taken a lot more effort and time to integrate him in the system. Because when we played Adelaide, we really did need the player that could break it down. Now, we also had, don't forget in that National League team I had, I mean, this is the front three. We had Benjamin Titori, we had Alan Pearce, and we had Roy Krishna. So you've got three absolute goal-scoring machines that could work. Um, Our back three was Danny Hay, Neil Emblems, and John Perry Um, in the midfield and then on either side we had Darren Bazley and Neil Sykes so that was a team that in my opinion could have beaten Adelaide in reality we should have beaten Adelaide our tactics were right on the day but I think we just lacked a little bit of creativity and a spark from a player that was used to playing in the high pressure environments who could have unlocked the team and when I put him on Uh, he was really angry with me, as players do. But when I finally put him on, he showed what he could have done when he was pissed off as compared to when he thought he was much better than the rest of us and he didn't have to do the work. And as a coach, I can stick my hand up and say, I really should have taken more effort to get him into the setup and try to understand him. But he had very, very limited English. Um, I'm not sure he really wanted to be here. Um, All the other things. But as a one-off game at a level like that, we needed an absolute
2: playmaker that could unlock environments, and I think he could have done that for us. If you don't if you'd only had Roy Krishna um, five <laughs> years on, it might have been the difference. Oh no, I can remember the first time I saw Roy. Uh, um, Rex and I had
1: gone to Fiji and he said to me, We're gonna go look at a couple of strikers. Yeah. And they pointed the ones out to me, and there were a couple of Fijian strikers, as in native Fijians, big strong lads running around. And I kept saying to Rex there's a little dude next to them, right? And and I remember to this day, there was a challenge there and Roy got absolutely hit. He went flying. He went up in the air and I thought, okay, let's see what he does. Well, he got up and he scored a goal and yeah. then the big lad got the ball and Roy steamed in and <laughs> lumped him. And I remember I said to Rex, we're signing him. And Rex, Rex already knew we were signing him. And um, so we, we signed him and I can still remember the attitude and the willingness to do what he did was always in Roy and he was raw. He could score goals. Um, but his finishing wasn't what it was. Roy got to the situation early on where he would hit a shot and it was hit or miss. I remember in the, in the second grand final, we were playing and we got beat 2-1 by Auckland city. And, um, all from a couple of mistakes, but Roy had three one-on-ones, and he went round Jacob Spoonley, and he missed the goal completely. You know, yep. so you go, you know, that's the difference between winning and losing. So Roy, Roy developed that side of his game to the player he is now, and it's just a, it's
0: just a joy to watch, really. So this question's from Gordon Glenn Watson as well. Who's the best player you've had play for you at Waitakere, Chris?
2: A really tough one. Um, you've named, you've named quite a good, good, uh, few good players uh, in that lineup beforehand, so it'd be a tough choice.
1: It is a tough choice because the reality is each of those players was significantly different. If you're talking from a, a, you know, a driven percentage of player that really wants to win no matter what, if you're talking that as the best, then it would be Paul Seaman. But Paul Seaman's nowhere near the most technically gifted player. But I, but just for example, with Paul Seaman, he was um, driven to win. He would do whatever it needed for the team. We were in a game one time and he came in and Paul was sitting there and he was breathing, and he turned around to Roy and Benji and, um, and Alan, and he said, look, I'm quite happy to do all your running and all your work. All you've got to do is score goals, and I'm quite happy to do it. So from a team perspective, he was gold. From an out-and-out technical point of view, running with the ball, you couldn't go past the Benjamin Titori, and I always thought it was such a shame that he didn't go to the A-League much earlier when he was a lot younger, because when he got moving with the ball, his manipulation and ability to to move that ball was truly, truly outstanding. Um, So I really, I don't know, from a leadership point of view, you've got Neil Emblem and you've got Danny Hay. Um, You know, from a goalkeeper's perspective, I've had some decent goalkeepers. I had, you know, a Danny Robinson and a Richard Gillespie and those sorts of lads. So the best player I ever worked with from a Waitakere, yeah, I I can't name that, because there were just so many good players that were so good at what they did. And I think when you start talking about the best player, they have to be competent at so many things. The reality is most players with our environment are not that. Uh, yeah. The best learning player I've ever come across in my life was Andy Bevan when he was down. He's played at Team Wellington, uh, but when we were under twenty World Cup, I would sort of start talking about what we want to do from a strategic point of view. His knowledge of football, from a you know just a native understanding of what he wants to do is outstanding. He is without doubt the sharpest football mind I've ever seen. Um but I remember we we found we gave Stefan his very first national league run at Waitakere United. We we put him in the team and he was a young baby, but even you know you know 15 and 16 we all went, oh my god, this guy is something else. And mm-hmm. so it was a it was about, about just finding the best player we had to play. And one of the things that we always did when we were winning everything, and it's something that I've, I's difficult to replicate, you had 16 or 17 players desperate to play every week, but they understood the tactical needs of the team dictated whether they played or not. I mean, we had a midfield with Semo, Chris Bale, uh, Neil Sykes, and Jake Butler, and only two of them played every week. And so, you really had to make sure you'd done all your analysis. You knew what the opposition was going to do, what the matchups were. And how are you going to play to who played? And they bought into that. The crew, the crew and the team all bought into that. And so the best play you've ever coached is the one that will do what the team needs to win a game. So its I always think
2: you can't really answer that one. No, no, that's fair enough. Um, and then second to last question. What was your best and worst memories from your 10, ten years uh, at Waitakere United? Okay, I'll go with the worst one. The worst one was
1: the grand hmm. final. We lost 2-1 to Auckland City. Um, we were the better team. We'd been the better team for two years. I think we'd, we'd barely lost a the game. They were struggling, and they had the they performed pretty poorly, and they won the grand final 2-1. And I think we'd won the league by eight points that year. And that was a very, very gutting, because, as I said, we, Roy had gone around the goalkeeper and missed some Fairly simple tuckaways for a player of his caliber. Um, and then they'd taken a shot, and Richard Gillespie was in goal for us, took his eye off the ball, and it's one of those ones that hit the keeper's hands. He pulled his head down and it went through his hands and went over the line for their winning goal. And so oh, you go, no. uh, and scored by Kieran Jordan, of all people. And so that's the sort of feeling where you go, oh, it's a game you should have won. So that was really thing. But the, the worst memory was what I said afterwards. And to this day, I just don't know why I said it. I was interviewed. Too soon after the game, and with the experience I've got now, I would never have answered the reporters after that. And I accused Auckland City of being, uh, you know, a mid-table team that had got lucky. And that the reality was, it was a one-off game, and they won the game. So that's you take it on the chin. And so, uh, yeah, that was the worst memory for that because I just thought, wow. And weirdly, the best memory is the previous year. And it was kind of weird. We won, as I said, we won the league, we won the grand final, we won the O-League, and we were going to the Club World Cup within about a three- or four-week period. And I remember it it was exhausting. It was, you know, we would win stuff, and we'd go, right, next week we've got to do this, next week we've got to do that. And finally we won, and I had the, I think it was the O-League final trophy, and we'd gone for a drink. And I remember I walked up to Rex, and I gave it to Rex, and I went, here you go, season's done we did what you wanted. And I remember I looked at Rex and the look on his face, I'll never forget. He was just so, I mean, he used the word grateful, but it wasn't grateful. I think a lot of his dreams had been fulfilled in that one moment with all those years of work of what we'd done. And between the two of us, we had created something that has never been repeated before. We, We had won everything as well as the National Youth League that year. And so, we'd done something in a manner in which he saw as what it was. And to be able to give him that after all his years within the game was a tremendous pleasure to myself, but also to see the pleasure on his
2: face made me think it's all worthwhile. Oh, nice. Nice. And to finish off, uh, this one I'm sure is going to be interesting. (laughs) Uh, Andy Hitch has asked uh you got you've got to ask him about going to a shopping mall in Santiago de Cali, Colombia at the under twenty World Cup. Oh wow. I'm wow.
1: wow. Uh, Cali or Colombia was a very, very different environment. It was wow. I mean we had a guy who was our security detailer. We nicknamed him Chuck Norris. And um, he was seriously frightening and the casual way the machine guns were carried and all the rest. It was it was kind of scary and I'll tell you a couple of stories. Well one I'll, I'll tell you but and we were driving in and I never knew whether it was pulling my leg or not, but in Calais there were all these towers around the place, as well as dirt sort of in the hillside. It was almost like someone had got a scraper and just scraped the hill. And so I said to I said to old Chuck there, and I said, What are they for? And he said, Well we shouldn't really tell you, but we do that so we can see the kidnappers coming down off the hill. And if we see them in time, we pick them off out of the towers. And I went, "Are you having pulling my leg?" But no, <laughs> apparently they weren't. And um, and then they the boys all said we want to go to a shopping centre, and it was like a military exercise to get us to the shopping centre uh, because at the time, you know, it wasn't that far out of. Um, you know, what you see with Narcos and that sort of thing. And they were really worried about a lot of things. There was one time when they heard some bang and the entire security detail told us all to sit down, get down, and they leapt off the, the bus and surrounded the bus with their guns out. And we're all going, whoa, I wonder what's going on. Then it suddenly clicked to all of us. Uh, they're kind of serious here. and So just things like that. Mm-hmm. But we go to this um, we go to the shopping mall. So in New Zealand, when you go to a shopping mall, you just drive into a car park and you get out of your car and you wander in. In this mall in Calais, we drove up. You get out of the bus. You go through the barbed wire gates. You are checked as you go into the place with barbed wire, and there is barbed wire, and there are armed people walking around the shopping mall at all times. There's hardly anybody in there. It's not very loud, and it it's quite oppressive. It feels really, really strange. And so those sorts, and there's lots of information about, those sorts of things and stories we've had, but that really brings it home to you very, very strongly the difference between what we have for granted here and what happens where other people live. And so, yeah, that shopping mall really was one of those times in life where you actually have to sit there and go, wow, 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 we don't know how lucky we are. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. But, yeah, I could tell I could tell hours for stories that happened in and. Colombia and then, of course, the next World Cup, we go to Turkey and they're all having riots and they're trying to drive us around Turkey where there's riots going everywhere. So you just kind of, at the time, just go far out. This is just so different. And so, yeah, I remember Andy and I, were there were many times when you're just laughing. And and as a coach, if any young coach is listening, pick a staff. If you're going to do this, pick a staff that you can get on, have a laugh with, um, see the sense of fun or the sense of irony of what you're doing. And then enjoy what you're doing, surrounded by people you like, as compared to and who are prepared to challenge and argue with you, but are all going in the same direction, um, as compared to I'll just take the people who can do the job. Well, you, you can't. It's too. It's too foreign. The what's happening. Is all these environments are just so weird. Um, I can still remember when we were in Colombia and Craig Alexander was fighting with the uh, the Colombians and FIFA and I think it was Uruguay officials, and Craig was standing there, typical New Zealand, standing there in his pair of shorts and his purple T-shirt after having set up the kit, gone the water. Here's your team manager, and he's having a fight with the officials. And when he walked in, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to go fill up some damn drink bottles, and I won that fight. And off he walked, <laughs> and all these dudes were standing around in blue suits and looking really official, and Craig won that fight. And I think to myself, there are some things we do that you just go, why are we doing this? But at the end of the day, surround yourself with really good people. Let really good people do their job and then trust them to do their job and do not micromanage
2: really good people and the successful flow. Oh, that's that's really interesting, eh? And uh, I can imagine being responsible for a squad of under-20s uh, in a, an environment like that, definitely <laughs> you'd need some people to share the stress with, that's for sure. That's for sure.
1: Well, you did. And and we there's one story. So we, we're on the last night. We've just found out we're not going through... Uh, because, uh, what was it, Puerto Rico, I think, had just scored in the last minute, and we would have been driving for hours to go to Spain, and Spain would have given us a, a right touch-up at the time. A lot of the famous Spanish players were playing at that time. Um, but it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and there's an almighty banging on my door. Bang, bang, bang. Suddenly Andy's up, I'm up, Alan Jones is up, Mike Oates is up. Some players have snuck out of the hotel, right? <laughs> and the- the security detail and the cops are going mental. And I'm going, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Because, of course, Kiwi players were over it. They wanted to go out, and but it had been quite restrictive. They hadn't gone out. What they'd done was they gate crashed a wedding and been welcomed to the wedding that was in the hotel, but in a different part of the hotel. But <laughs> well, For about an hour or so, oh, it was just <laughs> the cops were yelling at me, and I'm going, dude what do you want me to do? They've got no phones. I don't know. I'm not walking down the streets to look for them. So, you know, so it was funny. So, yeah, it was, there are the moments where you just realize the naivety of young Kiwi players is is, is quite frightening. And, you know, and, but what a great way to come through in your life that you just believe that life's great. And that's the way yeah. you should be brought up. And, and compare that to other environments, which are just so uh, so fearful of what's going on.
2: And just such a great exposure for the lads, too. Hey, that's um, some amazing stories you got there. We're going to move to our fast five section. Um, yes. Where I'm going to ask you five questions. You either answer one or the other, and it's rapid fire. Right. Yes. So I'm going to start with 1982 World Cup or 2010 World Cup? 2010. Yeah, nice. Uh, ISB Hander slash the National League or the A League? A ISB Hander League. Nice. Now, here's an interesting one. League or League Plus Finals format? League. Um, Would you like to, um, just to take a small break on this, would you like to see our National League implement that or do you think the League's too small just to run a straight uh, League format?
1: Personally, I'm a big favour on playing 30-plus games. Um, Too many people tell me it's too difficult, it's too expensive. I'm more in mind of the we need leadership that's prepared to say what's the optimum thing that we want to do now, how are we gonna fund it? Not what can we fund, let's do that. I would yeah, be prepared totally. to say, Why can't we have, you know, sixteen teams in the national league or alternatively league, let's go to play, play four rounds. If we're gonna have ten teams, let's play thirty six games with four four rounds. You know, um, let's let's make it a league to aspire to, to grow to and to run a league, and then you would find a champion. Uh, I've been in both boats. I've won won uh, competitions in grand finals, uh, not winning the league. I've also won leagues and not won won the grand final. And out of all those times, you feel the most satisfaction winning the league because it's significantly more difficult to do than winning a one-off game And you think about it, you go into a grand final, you're the champions, you're meant to win this thing, all the pressure's on you. The team that's come third or fourth are hitting the grand final and they can go, we can resurrect our entire poor year with a one-off game, let's give it everything. The mindsets are different, whereas to win a league, you have to prove you're the best team week in, week out, performing with injuries and all the other adversity that occurs to win the league. To me, the league wins. I would personally, if I was going to run, if you want to do the shorter thing, say... League's the grand winner, and now we're going to have every team in a top 10 or 12, four round, you know, almost like a Chatham Cup running for the next four weeks. And the winner of that is the second O League spot, Um, but I certainly wouldn't make it a top five or a top four playoff because then, you know, for three teams, it's like a reset. Personally, I think you just win the league and if you want to run, run a comp, cup competition at the end of it, bring all the teams back in and run a Chatham Cup-type co- competition with the National League teams to find the second spot.
2: Yeah, totally. I couldn't agree more, eh? And then uh, next question is uh, goalkeeper or striker? Goalkeeper every day of the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keepers union right here. Um, uh, Roy Krishna or Kieran Jordan? Kieran Jordan. Ooh. Wow. I think
1: you got to you got to understand, Kieran was something unique in this country. Um, Kieran turned up. He was South African. He was a South African international. The way he played and the way he moved and what he did and the goals he scored, and he, he rubbed people up the wrong way, old Kieran. But you know what? He rubbed up people the wrong way because he wanted to get better. Uh, he certainly struggled at times early doors with what went on, But he provided something unique that we hadn't seen previously for a long time in this country. We used to have strikers like Kieran running around the country when I was playing, but for a long period of time, we didn't. And Kieran was sort of like the first one. And it's no surprise to me, he kicked on and became the sort of superstar he he was within the New Zealand domestic sense. But I think at the time, the Football Kings were around and they had an opportunity to sign Kieran Jordan and Grant Young and all these other players. And for some reason... They didn't. And I think that if Kieran had played in the old NSL at that stage, he'd have been a superstar within that league because that boy could score goals from anywhere. He could twist and turn. He he did his little flip-flap and he could finish. He was a more complete player. I think Roy became better and better and better at Roy, but then he needed to go in the professional environment and he needed to kick on. And we're seeing Roy as that... But when he played for me, Kieran was a much better player than Roy was at the
0: time. So I'm going to have to go with Kieran. Wow. OK. Kieran Jordan over Roy Krishna. Well, Chris, i just got two more questions for you. The first one is, why Waitakere, why, why do you keep going back? I know the latest stint um, finished recently. <laughs> why is it always Waitakere United? Well, when you've turned Auckland City over as often as I have, <laughs> Auckland City
1: aren't going to give you an opportunity. <laughs> And to be fair, some of the wars that we had between Auckland City and Waitakere over the years were pretty feisty. Um, and so it is what it is. Um, and and I just want to coach at that level. And But the going back to Waitak was a case of they were losing their way. Uh, they were struggling. I mean, Waitak never went to another Club World Cup after my tenure. Um, they only went to one other O-League final and that was it. Um, and so when I went back in, And I think at the time it was uh, Paul Smalley and Brian Shelley were coaching the team. And and the team had completely, you know, got disinterested, lost. I don't know why. But the board and the uh, CEO decided to remove them and bring me in. Now, that year was particularly difficult. And I said to the board, that I'll build you another team. So I built another team. And that was a year in which we uh, just missed out on winning the league and we we made the semifinals. And that was when we drew six all down in Wellington, um, a game in which we were leading 3-1 and a couple of pens
2: and all sorts of weird stuff went on. Yeah, was the um, longest game that I've ever seen live, eh?
1: Yeah, it was just weird. And and to be fair, if we played that game again 50 times, Waitakere would have won that one. It's just no-brainer. no, no brainer. We were 3-1 up, we were cruising, and, you know, and then we were, you know, all the rest of the stuff. But at the end of the day, it's another game of football, and the winner on the day is a team that actually wins. And so you can never complain. Um and so I did that, and then I really and truly that was I done what I did said I was going to do, and then I was sort of attracted to going that next step. Uh, but then, like it's it's a no secret the, um, the we suddenly uh, had issues financially and uh, the collaboration off the field. There were lots of issues, and we really struggled. So then I took the move, and I said to the board. Uh, that I was going to step back. I would become the director of football. And what we would do is I would spend the next couple of years focusing on my business, which I've been doing, uh, but also rebuilding the club under, under a different type of model. And so over the last 18 months, you've seen the evolution of Waitakere from where they were to where they are now, in which they were third in the league. They would have probably made the, the playoffs and had a really good go at making the final. Um, compared to where we were in those previous seasons... Um, it was a real step forward. And so what we did was we brought coaches in just to coach the team. Um, I still signed all the team. I did all the work off the ground. I made sure everything was, you know, sorted with all my years of experience. And then just allowed the coaches and players to play and to coach. Because one of the things that coaches don't understand when they move into the National League is it's, start, it's the start of your coaching in which coaching is no longer the prevalent activity. You're hmm. dealing with so many other things That you need to get right to be successful and for you know for Paul Hobbs and for Malcolm that came in to just coach the team and allow all the other bits and pieces dealing with New Zealand football dealing with the regulations, dealing with the um the sponsors and all the other things that sat on my shoulders allowed them just to coach and focus on coaching and I think the byproduct is that as the team did significantly well in a model in which there is not a lot of funding for the club um but it's also a sustainable model that doesn't require a single cent from a gaming trust. And so, maybe that's the the future of the National League, I don't know. Uh, But we were a bit disappointed the league got called off this year, but the the three-year plan that I put into place is you know, we're only 18 months into it. So, you know, and will I go back into coaching? Well, definitely, you can't. I'm still coaching, I'm doing coach mentoring, I'm doing all sorts of things. Um, But yeah, so that's kind of what it is, and you know, I'd go to another National League team, but my opinion is I only want to go to a National League team that actually wants to win something. <laughs> and Unfortunately, that's only basically Auckland and Wellington at the moment. Yeah, um, All the others, I think, and let's not kid ourselves, they kind of just want to compete and see what they can do, but they're not really trying to win it because they don't believe
0: they can. Okay, and the last question I had was just going into that UEFA A licence and your coaching timeline. I mean, um, when did you really start pursuing that and, and get that locked in?
1: Yeah, okay. Um, I remember I went and did my higher-level A licence, whatever it is, for New Zealand here. And I remember I thought I, like a lot of us at the time, uh, Paul Smalley had arrived in New Zealand as a technical director of New Zealand. And I went to this course, and like a lot of us, I think we thought, we'll just turn up and we'll be fine. He failed me, and I remember I went ballistic. And... Um, <laughs> and not at not him or anything like that. I just didn't understand. But I was, I was steaming. I was incandescent. And so then I, I calmed down. And I went and spoke to him. And I said, look, why? And he said, a whole series of areas in which my coaching wasn't to standard. And that was when I kind of went, huh. So I've got away with being a motivational type guy, a driven guy, a guy people want to play for, and a guy that knows what it takes to win to suddenly realising I now needed to be technically gifted on the ground, understand strategy, understand tactics, and understand the development from a very, very basic point of view. So one of the things that I think when you think of the evolution of a coach, when they first start, there's a tremendous amount of cones on the grounds. It's very structured. It's very organised. There is stuff going on. Coaches are screaming instructions. There's, you know, barking and oh, all the rest. You can always tell a very experienced, very knowledgeable coach when they get the team playing football on a park with hardly any cones and they're coaching in that environment to their playing model. Now, it takes a tremendous amount of experience. I was back there when I first met Paul Smalley. So when he exposed me to where I needed to go, I just committed for two years to do my A licence in the, in the UK. And I paid for all myself, uh, no support, and I needed to pass. And so I just committed fully for two years to do it. And, and the A license in the UK is, is, is hard. You go for the first two weeks and you, you do all the thing. Then you've got, you've got this book, and the book's about two inches thick of coursework that you've got to finish. And it covers oh, physiology, psychology, fitness, um, you know, technical, playing development, coach development, all of this stuff. And it's really, really intense, So you do all that work. you got to send it, and then they say, yes, come on, part two. So you turn up to part two, and when I did it at the time, it's different now. Basically, you had to run two sessions, and on your first session, you had to get, out of 120 marks, you had to get over 60%. Sorry, you had to get as high a mark as you could, and in the second one, your minimum had to be 60 out of 100. You had to get 60 out of 100 to pass. And Dick Bate, who is unfortunately dead now, he was running the course. And he stood up and he said, look, we will not pass you unless we believe that tomorrow when you leave the course or when you leave the course, you could walk into Manchester United and coach Manchester United (laughs) first team on the grass. If we believe you can't do that, we will not pass you.
0: That is crazy.
1: So when I started my A licence, there were two courses, 80 people. And at the end of the, the two years, out of those 80 people, seven people passed. Seven. They failed. They failed all sorts of people, and weirdly, that was where I met. Han- I really got to know Andy Hedge. Andy Hedge and I were the two of the seven that passed. And wow. I can remember it was it was insane. It uh, so my eleven v eleven, which I had to get sixty percent to pass. And if you don't get sixty percent, doesn't matter what you've done over the last two years, you fail. <laughs> you have to restart. So it's it's a brutal world, right? And so the players are all ex-pros and pros and everybody's trying to work what goes on. And, and the funny thing about an A-license, and I say to young coaches going, no matter what you do, play in the first game and prove to them that you could play. Because if you rocked up and you think you're a bit of a coach and you think this and you turn up and you try to start playing in the first game and you can't play, you're never going to pass. They <laughs> will not play to pass you in those coaching sessions. So, you know, so you have to get in there and you have to mix it. So I was fairly lucky. My shoulder wasn't great, but I said, I'm going in goal for the first game. And I went and goal for the first game. And, you know, I, I, some of the old things sort of came back and I did quite well. And after that, you're fine. The pros think you can play. You were a player. They may not know your history or career, but they believed you. Because at the end of the day, they've got to play in your training session. So you need them to do what you want to do because they can kill a session. They've been killing sessions since they were uh, knee-high to a grasshopper when they've been a professional footballer. Yeah. So you have to get on with them. So in my session, I had to run a midfield, midfield uh, transition. And I remember going, oh my God. Anyway, so I ran this session. My first session was really good. I got seventy-two out of hundred and you know, it was really high class, but it was defending with a back three. And I'd spent two years defending with a back three, so I, I knew it. I was dealt that part. The second one was playing through the transition of midfield. So I ran this session. It was okay. I wasn't I wasn't a hundred percent, but I thought it's enough to park it pass. Anyway, except for the fact that the coach who was going to pass me was Jeff Pike. Now, Jeff Pike played in midfield with West Ham with Trevor Brooking his whole life. So, <laughs> so, so I'm sitting there going, well, if you're a midfielder, you may be looking at that guy. what a load of rubbish. <laughs> but so Jeff pulls me in and he goes, Chris, we're going to talk about your session. And he, and he was so deadpan when he started. I was like, oh my God, I failed. And I thought all the money, all the effort. And he went, no, no, you passed. Because reality is, you've done a session that was of the quality, and I believe that you'll continue to evolve and work what you're doing. And so I passed. I got 61 for that, which I was, like, far out. And um, so that was really, really cool then. But Andy Hedge, for example, he had got – he had to get 120 marks over the two things to pass, and you had to get 60 in the second one. That was right. So Andy Hedge had only got – Forty-eight, maybe fifty-two in his first one. So he was really under the pressure. The session that Andy put on for his part two was one of the best sessions I've ever seen in my life, and he blitzed the A license by getting a really high mark in an eleven-year event in part two. It was, it was true. So when the pressure counted, and that was when I kind of knew that Andy was the one I wanted to work with from an international point of view because. He really just synced in with what I what I do. So, yeah, but that was tough. And to pass it was a sense of relief. Um, and to me, that's what it should be. If you're going to do an upper license course, it's got to be comparable to the level you want to work it and never give it away and make people actually earn it. And if you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Unfortunately, now we seem to have all sorts of courses running in which people get passed um, at an A licence level in which they go to leave New Zealand or Oceania and it's not recognised and their skill base is not even close to being acceptable within a European environment. And so you'll never get it cross-credited from a New Zealand or Oceania A licence to a European A licence, which I think is a crying shame.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so just for the the timeline's sake, what age were you when you, when you got that A licence and, and when you went into that... Um... It was 2008
1: um, I did that, and yeah, passed in 2008. So before I did the under-20s the first time, i just won the National League and all the other bits. But that, to me, was part of the reason why we did so well in that first group, Um, all the experience, because – I often think that when you think about it, that, that coaching group we had at the time, there was Andy Hedge, there was myself, both UAE for A licences, um, Alan Jones, who's an away for A licence, but also been a professional coach for 38 years, uh, Mark Oates, who's one of New Zealand's top goalkeeping coaches, we had enough coaches. And so what we could do was we could tandem coach. Yeah. Now, one of the things about tandem coaching is um, people are down the different sort of uh, spectrum of coaching. Andy's probably what you'd call really player centric. He he talks to the players. He gets them. He's a great question answering. Alan's probably down the other end, and I kind of sit in the middle. But what we and, but when you think about players learning actions or players learning methodology, they listen, they see, and they hear. But they hear what certain people teach them. So one group that would understand what Andy did maybe didn't understand it till I did it or maybe didn't understand until Alan did it so what we did was we ran the same session so I said right we're going to work on playing out from the back so and I'd say to Alan right you're running a session on playing out from the back Andy you're doing one and I'm doing one so we would do the same session over that period leading into the World Cup and that would mean that every single player there was taught in the optimum message for them it allowed them to learn what was going on with the coach that they most were in sync with Therefore, speeding up the development of the group to become consistently
0: able to perform. Fantastic. Fantastic, mate. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I think we've had all our
2: questions answered, Mike. Yeah, totally. and yeah. Chris, it's been amazing to hear about your experience and I hope we get you on the pod again at some point as well.
0: No,
1: any time. I, look, I love New Zealand football and I love New Zealand. And I love, well, I love football in New Zealand. And I think that the more we get the opportunity to share what we've done and people, maybe there's people out there to go, look, I want to do better than that and I want to move on and I I think go for it. I think part of the legacy is leave something that somebody else can make better and improve and, you know, maybe I've done that, maybe I haven't, but I like to think that I certainly have left a, sort of mark of where people want to go and i'm more than happy to share and as i said i mentor all sorts of coaches now and i'll just continue to do that because i think we're small but we can be competitive against everybody if we're
0: prepared to just uh, suck it up and leave the egos at the door and just go ahead and do it thank you very much chris well this has been the total football podcast i've been Connor clements joined today by chris Milosic, and my co-host is mike anderson uh, if you want to find out more you can go to www.totalfootball. And you can listen to our podcast. You can watch our YouTube videos. And we also have a weekly correspondent, uh, Dan Moskowitz, who's just joined us. And he's doing A-League articles. um, So you can keep up to date with those. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. And we will see you next week. (music)